Here now as I read for you and preach for, for you out of Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? There is nothing but sadness of heart. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah in a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, and that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, this book is a book of good news because it is a book about your good hand. Help us, Father, to respond faithfully with even broken hearts, but hopeful hearts, to the work of your good hand that we see here described in the history written in the book of Nehemiah, but also as we connect to this word, as we see your good hand throughout the ages and even now in the time to come. Father, help us to hear your word and respond in faithfulness. By your word and power and spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> As you may see in the order of worship that I have titled this sermon today, The Good Hand of God. I would say that this would be a good title for the whole book of Nehemiah. It would be a good title for the whole book of Ezra and Nehemiah. As I've explained in the past that the book of Nehemiah is really part two of the whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah. The whole story of God's people returning from exile to build the temple, and now in Nehemiah, the temple walls. 
That is the, the number one highlight of everything that we see is the power and good hand of God for his people and how he uses the whole world for the sake of showing forth a display of that good hand. As I meditated upon that this week, for some reason, and if you know me well, you know that my mind can get distracted and get off base, that I was thinking about the title for, of the 1960s movie, Cool Hand Luke, which at first I'm thinking, oh, Lord, help me. I'm getting distracted here. But then I think that maybe in the Lord's grace, he's given me this reminder because there is a contrast in the movie, The Cool Hand Luke. In Cool Hand Luke, the reason why Luke has a cool hand is that he is one who shows great tenacity in rebellion. See, this movie that stars Paul Newman, it was an award-winning movie, he's in prison. And to gain the respect and the honor of his fellow inmates, he shows this tenacity and strength in the face of trial and also this rebellion against the authority around him. And so when he shows forth that kind of strength, he gains that honor. He is a man against the system. But here in that movie, a very popular, you may be more familiar with this quote than maybe even the movie. One of the most popular quotes in movie history is when the warden comes in and speaks to the inmates, he says, what we've got here is a failure to communicate. Has anybody heard that quote before? Because he's trying to impose upon them the subjection to authority that they don't understand. What they need to understand is that he is going to be the ruler over them and they need to subject themselves to that. When we think about the world today, we do have a problem with faithful communication and media. We don't have information that we sometimes need. It gets twisted and tweaked. And, but even with the resources we do have, it's not just a matter of the failure of communication or receiving the news that we need to hear. We can get the news to a certain degree to know that it's bad news and there are bad things going on in the world today. And the more that we get more clear communication, it seems to be even more daunting when we start seeing behind the scenes some of the things that are going on or when we get to know people. Sometimes it's just an individual level. The more that we get to dwell and look upon the hearts of certain people, we go, oh my goodness, we're so full of sin and hopelessness. But I would venture to say that in... Opposition in contrast to that comment, what we've got here is a failure to contemplate and celebrate that God is the one to always demonstrate that he will never fail to dominate. Now, if I was in an old-fashioned Baptist church, I would have gotten a lot of amens out of that. So I want to say that again. What we've got here is a failure to contemplate and celebrate that God is one to always demonstrate that he will never fail to dominate. 
That is the hope that we need. We don't just need communication. We need to understand that God is dominating and he is always dominating. And that here in this story, the whole context of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, it starts in this backdrop of understanding that God is ruling over the world. The good hand of God is displayed by his continual displays of his tenacity and his steadfast love to keep his promises. And therefore, we should respond with tremendous confidence and honor and hopefulness that he will come through. That is the backdrop for Nehemiah. That is even the backdrop for Nehemiah when he is brokenhearted, when he hears about the condition of the temple walls. He is still, though, in the back of his mind, remembering who his God is. See, he remembers the very first part of this book going back to Ezra chapter 1. Turn over to that. It's very important that we get the right context here so that we can contemplate and celebrate what the Lord is wanting to demonstrate. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, this is what the beginning of this book really, because this again was one book at one time, this is the beginning of this particular substory of the great story of God's provision for his people. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also putting in writing, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. The very beginning of this story highlights for us this amazing thing. It's almost that the, the, almost the end of the story is already here because we already see God has conquered. This is Cyrus the Great. He was over the kingdoms at that time, the largest kingdom known to mankind in the history of mankind. He had power and authority over all those things. And he is saying that God gave these things to me. And we know that God is stirring him to say these things. And he's saying, and I'm going to respond by telling his people to go and build this temple. He is being an instrument by God. He is under the power of God, very much like we've heard out of the gospel reading. We have these wicked spirits responding in obedience. I'm not sure where Cyrus was in his 
salvific place with God, whether he ultimately ever became one of God's people in the sense of salvation, history indicates that even during this particular time, he was still worshiping pagan gods. But what we see here is God is in control. And he is going to demonstrate his power right now. Just as he demonstrated his power to God's people by using the wicked pagan rulers to judge his people as a discipline for their sin, he is now going to use pagan leaders to rescue them and to rebuild his temple and to continue to bring forth the furthering of his kingdom and display the power of his might. When we think about what is bad news in the world today, We need to always have that in our backdrop to understand that God is still in control, that nothing is outside of his will. And if God can move the most powerful leader in the world to actually be an instrument to lead forth the building of his own temple, there's nothing that our God cannot do. Nehemiah knows this. And this is why when we see his prayer and we see the response of the bad news that he receives of the condition of the temple walls, that he immediately in his prayer in the first chapter of Nehemiah, he is remembering how great God is. He begins his prayer in verse 5 of chapter 1 by remembering that God is great and awesome, keeps his covenant, shows forth his steadfast love. He reminds us in his prayer that God hears and sees his people, remembers his people in verse 8, and that he has this great power and strong hand in verse 10. As he is pleading out to God, he has reason to have hope in God. As he is weeping and fasting and brokenhearted about the condition of the kingdom. This is a perfect and wonderful display for us to understand for ourselves. Here we see Nehemiah. We're reminded in the transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2 that he is the servant of the new king, Artaxerxes. Now, I'm not going to try to lay out a chronological connection to all these leaders that are in this story because people have been trying to do that for years. You have Cyrus and Darius and you have Artaxerxes I and Artaxerxes II, and, and how they all fit into the whole story and how it's laid out in Ezra and Nehemiah. I just I can't get my head wrapped around it. But the thing that we can see very clearly in what God is showing us in his word is that these world leaders, and we can say world leaders because the known world at that time, these powerful leaders are all under the power and instrumentation of God and use of God. And here we have Nehemiah, who is a cupbearer servant of the king, a trusted servant of the king. And he is serving King Artaxerxes, and he's brokenhearted. We just saw the prayer that he was praying. And we see that this is, based upon what I can gather, when we heard his prayer in chapter 1, it was around sometime in the fall. And here we are going into spring And he is still heavy-hearted about the situation that he had heard about the gates of Jerusalem. 
and it's weighing him down, and he's bringing forth the wine during a particular celebration, and the king says to him, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This, noth- this is nothing but sadness of heart. Here the king perceives, he's very perceptive, because in that particular culture, there was this um, particular um, response that people were to have that you had to have this positive appearance about yourself that it was insulting to to look sad you couldn't you couldn't have a, a grievous look upon your face um it's not you know for us we think about it well you know we're free we if we're grumpy we don't care we're just going to be grumpy you know we we kind of hope everybody sees that we're grumpy you know, that's how confident we are. We're just like, you know what? I don't care what other people think. I'm, I'm not in a good mood. I'm going to act like I'm in a, in a bad mood. But in this particular culture, especially standing before the king in the position that he was in, it was not a good thing for him to have this countenance before the king. It could be even read as a sign of disrespect. That's why we see this response in Nehemiah that he was afraid because he was afraid that he may have been coming across dishonorable. But we begin to see this interaction. He asked these questions, and the first question he asked is why, but we see here that there's this interchange between the two of them. One is, why is your face sad? And then after he explains why he is sad, the next question ends up being, what are you requesting? Why are you telling me this? And we we know that he's doing something a little unusual here because he he went from being afraid to being bold. And that transition was due to a prayer that he had before God. But then in the last question was, when will you return? How long will this take and when will you return? I want us to think about those three particular questions as the three points of my sermon today. The why and the what and the when. As we look at this interchange, I want us to to learn from Nehemiah, very much like I did in the last sermon, as we learn from his prayer. I want us to learn from Nehemiah. Nehemiah is considered throughout Christian history to be an exemplary example of, of leadership and of faithfulness in how he handled this situation. And so we can learn from his posture and his prayer, but we can also learn from his posture in this exchange with King Artaxerxes. So why, what, and when? So let's look at this why. We saw in the prayer that Nehemiah prayed in chapter 1 that he was heartbroken when he heard of the destruction of the temple's walls. They've begun the temple rebuild, but they have not yet brought it fully to completion. Now, again, chronologically, these things can be all kind of scrambled up. So if you go, well, no, I've read somewhere that it actually was happening before or somewhere in the middle, I, it's, it's kind of confusing for me. It's, even though you've got some dates and, and leaders' names here, I still haven't got the chrono- chronological element figured out. And it, I don't know if it matters too much. <laughs> But we know that he was upset because not only is there a problem for his people, 
the people of God, but the glory of God seems to be in a bad shape, though God's glory never really is. But the honor of the Lord is also provoking him to be in this place of sadness. Now we can say, well, how can we, if God is in control, if he is all-powerful and great, is it wrong for us to be sad? Is it wrong for us to be downtrodden? And I would say no. I think the scripture gives us both of those things to hold on to. The whole book of the Psalms are full of those interactions of understanding how great God is and also at the same time having heartbrokenness and sadness. They can be interwoven. We should never be brought to despair and hopelessness and to reject God or even blaspheme against God in our response to sadness, but it should be within the context of understanding God's greatness. You see this a lot in this particular story. You see this a lot throughout Scripture. Going back to Ezra, we see in chapter 3 that after the, uh, Cyrus had made the proclamation to rebuild the temple, eventually it got to the point where they did a lot of census and taking numbers of who all was going to be involved in this. You see that in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, as they began to do the work, the very first thing they do is before they lay down the first foundation stone is that they begin to do sacrifices and worship God, recognizing their need of salvation from sin. There is this humble posture that they must worship the Lord in obedience of understanding that there has to be some kind of reckoning for their sin which is a very faithful response considering that they've been in exile because of their sin. So when we understand the greatness of God and the steadfastness of God, the tenacity of God, an appropriate initial response is repentance and sadness. But as we begin to be encouraged and hopeful of our forgiveness, it is good for us to be sad about the condition of God's people in the current place of the church in this day. We see in chapter 3 that after they had these burnt offerings, we see that they then praised God, responding to these circumstances by saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And they all shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So they repented and then they reacted. They laid forth the stone and they shouted forth praises. But even in that particular context in chapter 3, there were those who were among them that their shouts were shouts of sadness of the older generation that had seen the glory of the temple and they still were longing for seeing that glory. That even in the midst of the work, I don't know if it was so much impatience or just nostalgia or just longing to see the glory of God shine more brightly. But their hearts longed for it to such a point that 
There was a confusion between the shouts of happiness and the shouts of sadness. We, that is our life as Christians. The more we see what is going on in the world and we contrast it with the greatness of God, there should be repentance, but there should also be this longing of hope of seeing something change. Our why of where we're sad shouldn't be driven by these temporal failures of life or these not getting our expectations of our comforts of life. But we should be driven by a why that the glory of God is not yet in its fullness and completeness. We might see that amongst our relationships with one another. We can have a hope that God is transforming us. But at the same time, we can long and be sad when we see people stumbling in sin. We should feel that way about ourselves. We can be hopeful that we are saved by the grace of God and have a confidence and faith that we are in his goodness. But then at the same time, continue to see areas of our failure and sin and be sad about it. Like the prayer, I believe, but God help me in my unbelief. That is an interesting contrast, but an appropriate response for us as we consider why we would be sad. We would not want to be in a place where we are hopeless, forgetting that we have a great God. But that sadness should be this place of understanding that we're not quite yet in the fullness of his completed glory. Secondly, what are we requesting? If we have this faithful understanding of God's greatness, and we have this faithful understanding that we're in the already but not yet, that we're still in this journey, what are we going to request? Here we see Nehemiah, he explains to Artaxerxes that there is this brokenness in the walls in the city where his fathers were buried. He did, he, I don't know how much Artaxerxes understood and how much he was getting involved in. And there's a good reason to believe that maybe Artaxerxes knew a whole lot about what God had done before the kings before him. But regardless, we have this situation where he's explaining the circumstances and the king can realize that here we have one with much boldness that he's talking about things that are not particularly pertaining to my immediate kingdom here. Why are you, what are you asking me for? There's a boldness all of a sudden from Nehemiah. And he tells them, if it pleases the king and if your servant, if I have found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. He is asking his master to let him go and do this work to approve it, that to not only just to approve it, but that it would be pleasing to him that he would go and do this work. He's standing before a pagan king asking for this thing. How can 
Nehemiah have such boldness? How can he have such confidence that he would be able to ask such things and get a successful response? But we have to go back to his original prayer. We see that he has this very concise moment of praying right before he tells the king what he wants to tell him. He actually takes a moment and he does a quick prayer, but that prayer is attached to a bigger prayer. And that should teach us a lot right there that, you know, a lot of times we, we do these little quick prayers, you know, and we're like, and sometimes we only have it just a moment. Like, Lord, help me in this situation. Help me say the right words. Help me not lose my, myself in this moment. Help me with temptation. And those are good, small, and concise prayers to pray. But we see in chapter 1, he had a much more in-depth prayer before he got to this place, months before this circumstance happened. We see in chapter 1 that he was praying and meditating and contemplating about God demonstrating his greatness in the world. And he had the audacity because of that, knowing that God is going to keep his steadfastness to actually pray that he would have success in being able to help be a part of the remedy of the condition of the temple walls. This is something that started months in advance. This is something that was already in the mind and in the prayers of Nehemiah before it happened. He was already prayed up, as a lot of people use in terminology today. We need to learn from Nehemiah to be prayed up ahead of time, to be contemplating the theology of God in him keeping his promises so that our prayers may be aligned with God's will and not just our wills. Don't us, not, let us not have a narrow perspective of like, oh, he just did this little prayer and I'm as good to go. No, he had been meditating and contemplating for some time on this potential of him doing this. He probably had no insight, maybe, that when this time would come, but the time came and he responded based upon those prayers. So he had success. That what he prayed in chapter one, verse 11, he was going to be able to be a mercy witness to the world. So what are you requesting? You know, first of all, going back, why do you do what you do? What drives you? What is your passion? What is, it, it, what is the passion of your prayers that drives you to both celebrate and to weep? And then secondly, what are you asking for? What are you requesting from God to do with that? As you meditate upon his greatness and our weakness, what are you requesting from God to do about it? And are those things in line with what he has promised and proclaimed? But then lastly, there is a question of action. In verse six, it says, and the king said to me, the queen, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? I don't know if that's how he answered the question. It sounds like it might have been. He's like, will you let me do this? Would it please you to let me do this? And he's like, 
When are you going to get back? What a cool answer. That it's time for action. Give me a, some insight of how long you're going to be gone and when are you going to be back here to serve me my wine? The question for us is, when are we going to act on this? We can meditate. We can contemplate. We can pray. We can ask for God to move us and do something in and through us. And we may have an understanding of the privilege that we have to be his people and to be a witness to the world. But when are you going to act? When are you going to make it a priority into your life? When are you going to schedule it? And how are you going to schedule it? What are the particulars of making this happen? See, it's interesting. We can often pray, Lord, help me with temptation. Lord, help me be a witness. But we don't often sometimes, we let the world let us be busy and be a distraction to us. And we don't actually make it a priority. We understand the privilege we have in praying those kind of things. But do we make them a priority that we actually schedule it in our life? It's like I've had a Y membership since last summer sometime. And I thought, you know, I can get this Y membership because my kids like to swim and I can take them to swim. But also I will use it to exercise. And I will get in better shape and lose some weight. And that was sometime in the summer. Do you know when the first time I actually scheduled in my life to start using <laughs> the Y for my own health? October, after I thought I was having a heart attack. <laughs> I didn't make it a priority. It was an idea. I said I wanted to do these things. I wanted to be useful. I knew that I had this opportunity and privilege of being able to go to the Y. I had this access to the pool and free weights and doing all these different activities. And I just let it sit there. I didn't make it a priority until I thought that maybe I'm in trouble. I need to get my life together when it comes to my health. So when will you return? When will you do these things? We don't have the interaction of any kind of schedule laid out, but we know that he went to action. He responded by continuing to ask for things. And as he says, so it pleased the king to send me. We don't know how he responded. When I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Nehemiah definitely has some boldness here. Not only did he have the boldness to say, can I take some time off to go and do this thing in Judah, but can you send me a letter of authority so that I can go into this situation knowing that I'm going to have some pushback, 
So I can say I have the authority to do this thing. And can you fund this <laughs> by letting me have the timber and anything I need to build not only this wall, but my own house? Now again, this is a boldness that doesn't just come from tenacity. It is a boldness that comes from the understanding of the tenacity of God. He knows that God is going to do his thing. Now, I don't know if he knew with certainty that he would respond the way that he did. But he thought, why not? <laughs> now, I want us to keep this in mind that we're living in an age of great tyranny. And we are living in a time where there could be a lot of fear of what these tyrants want to do to us. We're praying for people. We're waiting Monday to hear a response from jurors about whether or not people are going to have to go to prison for simply just praying and singing in a hallway in an abortion mill. There is great reason to fear that these tyrants are going to crush us. But we are taught here in God's word. One, he's in charge. And two, we are learning here from Nehemiah, we should submit ourselves to that understanding of him being in authority and ask for the things that God needs to continue to further that proclamation throughout the world. We need to say, let me. We need to say, give me. Here we see that Nehemiah is not acting outside of authority. He is asking that God would even use that authority to propel him and equip him. We're not seeing that Nehemiah is just going to go into this with any kind of no idea of what's going to happen, but he's willing to ask even the authorities, the pagan authorities of that time, to fund his process in making this happen. This is the power of God. This is the confidence in the power of God. This is the kind of God that we serve. And it says that, and the king granted me what I asked. And then once again, just so the king doesn't get too much glory in this, it says, for the good hand of my God was upon me. We are reminded once again that this is all God. This is the good hand of God. Now let us not forget that it was the strong hand of God that put them in exile. It was the strong hand of God that brought about the destruction of the temple. We can have hope in both of those circumstances. We can have a hope in the midst of all of those circumstances. We can have moments when we see things are going well, give God the glory. And when things are not going well, give God the glory and trust that his hand is still at work. There's a lot that can be said about these particular things and uh, just so many things come to mind. And I pray that you'll, I'll pray that you'll just go and contemplate on both Nehemiah 1 and Nehemiah 2 and just be amazed at the good news that comes from this particular book. 
I sent out last Sunday, I sent you a little drawing by the Bible Project, and it kind of lays some things out just so that it can get some level of organization of Ezra and Nehemiah. And I put a note in there that I don't necessarily agree with the commentary from the people who did this particular drawing. I thought it was a cool drawing, but if you listen to their actual commentary, and they have a long teaching about Ezra and Nehemiah, they highlight a lot of hopelessness in there. And I I felt like it took away some of the glory of of what God was doing. It was an incomplete. By all means, I agree that this story of Ezra and Nehemiah is an incomplete thing. It's when the temple was built, that temple's already been destroyed again. So it was just a temporary story for an eternal story that is occurring. But it is definitely, and I want to encourage you, it is definitely a good news story. Because the good news is coming from the tenacity of God. Yes, there's some faltering here and there in both Ezra and Nehemiah of mankind. And it does highlight for us on how we need even a better Savior, a true Savior, Jesus Christ. But it is tremendously good news. And I hope you can be encouraged by that. But I do kind of agree with them on the one part is that it's an incomplete component. That there is still a missing piece, which is an ultimate Messiah for an ultimate kingdom in an ultimate temple of his people. But we can learn from this story just like we do in the gospel story. That when Jesus came, he even did another temporary story showing us how he is the greater Nehemiah and how he is the greater Savior. When we look at John chapter 11, you don't have to turn there because you'll probably remember this story. It was the story of when Lazarus had died. And when Lazarus had died, there was... A heartbreaking circumstance. Lazarus was close to Jesus and he was very much close to the sisters. And there was a lot of weeping going on. When Jesus saw the weeping of one of the sisters and the Jews that had come with her also weeping, it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in all of Scripture, it says, Jesus wept. Here is Jesus. He is God. He knows what has happened in the past better than Nehemiah has, and he knows what's going to occur better than anyone else knows. But he wept. He wept at the effects of sin on the human body and the effects of sin on relationships and the brokenness of sin and the incompleteness of what is intended by God in his ultimate desire to dwell in fellowship with his people. He wept and he was moved deep in his spirit. But in verse 38 It says, then Jesus deeply moved again. He came to the tomb. 
It was a cave and a stone was laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench. For he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. These are temporary stories of the greatness of God. We know that Lazarus comes out of the tomb. We know that he is resurrected, not for the purpose of just his eternal resurrection, but for a display, even a temporary display, of the power of God in the good news of the ultimate resurrection of his people. As we continue to go through the book of Nehemiah, may you observe these stories. May you also weep and maybe even fast and pray as you consider your own brokenness, as you consider the brokenness of other family members, as you consider the brokenness and the incompleteness in the weakness of the church, as you pray and are heartbroken for our nation and for our world, remember that what is occurring in the here and the now is for the ultimate display of God's mighty, dominant power over all things. Pray in this way, weep in this way, fast in this way, with all confidence, even more now that we know who our Messiah is and that our King of Kings reigns truly at the right hand and that all things have been placed at his feet and he will continue to dominate over us, over his church, and over this world. Let it be. And let us pray.